Hello and welcome to The Lee Show. As always, I'm Lee. It's nice to be here with you. I told a story last week about my engagement party, which then made me think about my bachelor party as well. For my bachelor party, I went to Iceland with some friends and family. It was all a surprise for me. They planned the whole thing. They just told me to pack, meet them at a certain spot, certain date. And so we landed in Reykjavik. There was this shuttle van that took us from the airport to our hotel in downtown Reykjavik. It's like a 45-minute trip. And the driver of the van spoke twice. The first time was when we passed this large building. And I'm not going to do justice to the accent here, but he goes, here is public pool. And uh, I mean, okay, sure, but we're probably not going to go to a public pool on a bachelor party. I know the Blue Lagoon is famous. We went there. It's not really a public pool. It was lovely there. There was this huge music festival going on in Iceland at the time called the Airwaves Festival. And so at the Blue Lagoon, when we went there, they had this guy called DJ Detect. He was playing. He played this amazing track called Fuck Nicole, which I'm including a link to it. It's still one of my faves. It's in in the Substack. For those that aren't familiar with the Blue Lagoon, it's like this giant lake filled with water that's the color of light blue milk. And it's heated geothermally, or at least they tell you it's heated geothermally, and the water is supposed to be like good for your skin. Um, there's also pictures of it in the Substack if you want to go look it up. My favorite part of the Blue Lagoon was urinating, which I did a lot. I must have peed like 30 times in that water because it's so warm. You just can't help yourself. I actually ruined a Vilbrican bathing suit with pee stains from from going so much. Anyway, so that's the first thing that the guy points out is the public pool. Then a few minutes later, we drive past this little stand and he goes, here is best hot dog in all of world. And again, we're like a bit skeptical. We're New Yorkers. We know a thing or two about hot dogs. And, and I'm, I, I love to eat when I travel. I, I, like, I really care about food. I care about every meal. Doesn't mean they're all going to be great, but I care about every meal. Couldn't do any research. So I didn't know anything about the food in Iceland. I mean, this was 2007. So like, I don't even know what was on the internet then, but probably not that much. And, and I didn't do any research. So as I mentioned, there was this music festival there called the Airways Festival. And my younger brother was in charge of getting the tickets for us, but he forgot to do it. So during the day, we we found someone with a, a wristband, which is what would get you into the music festival. And we took a picture of it up close. And then we went to an art supply store to get the supplies to make the, the fake wristbands. That was our, our big plan. So the first night we got to dinner and, uh, and then we have our fake wristbands on and we try to sneak into the music festival. But just as we're getting close to the front, we see that there's like a bouncer who's feeling everyone's wristband. We knew that ours would not pass the test. So we give up and we decide to go to a regular nightclub. We have a great time, like three or four in the morning. We get back to our hotel. We're starving. And this hot dog stand that the van driver had mentioned is open 24 hours. It's only a block away from the hotel. So we walk over to the hot dog stand. And man, was that van driver onto something. This this stand, it's called, I'm going to screw up the pronunciation here, Bejaren's Best Two Pilser. And... If you are Icelandic, I'm sure you can tell me how to pronounce it, but this place is like a national treasure. We walked up and there's photos of American presidents and Metallica and Charlie Sheen and all these famous people eating at the hot dog stand. It's been open since 1937, which I mean, that's a really long time. 
the hot dogs are made from lamb. And then on the side of them, they put diced raw onions, fried onions. And on top, they put homemade ketchup, sweet mustard, and remoulade. Remoulade is a mayonnaise-based sauce, but it's sweeter. The entire combination is glorious. It's one of the greatest foods I've ever tasted. So like we get our hot dogs and it's, it's I mean, it's a revelation. We immediately order another one for each of us. And over the next few days, we go back there again and again. We feel awful from eating so many hot dogs. So first thing the van driver had said, you know, this hot dog stand, this, this was a huge hit. A couple of days later, we do some activities and then someone else recommends that we check out this public pool. So we're like, all right, we'll give it a try. And so we find out that Iceland has this whole network of public pools. They have gyms attached to them and recreational facilities, like I guess kind of the way we have Equinox in New York City. So we go to the big central public pool building. Here we are, this group of guys. We all walk in holding our bathing suits, including mine with the pee stains. And the attendant at the desk is this very friendly guy and he he looks at us and he says, I'm sorry, that style of bathing suit is not permitted. You have to have a Speedo style bathing suit. Not to worry, he says. He has them available for us to rent for a small fee. And this didn't seem crazy to me. Like one of my brothers was living in Paris at the time and he had joined a gym that required Speedo style bathing suits. So I guess I just assumed that this was a normal thing in Europe. So we all rent our black Speedos. We go into the locker room. We change into them. We figure everyone's going to be wearing them. Won't be a big deal. But these were like really skimpy. They were micro thong cuts. I mean, they were really skimpy. And we all put them on. So you have this group of guys that walks out of the locker room, all of us in matching black micro Speedos. It was sort of like that scene in Reservoir Dogs where they're all in matching black suits, except in Speedos. So we walk out to the pool. And everyone on the pool deck just goes silent and they stare at us. And the whole place is filled with Icelandic people in normal short style bathing suits. And they see this group of American idiots in matching black Speedos. I don't know if they thought it was a stunt or or like we were filming a TV show, but the guy at the desk completely punked us. I mean, it was, it was brilliant. So if you go to Iceland, have the hot dogs, but say no on the Speedo rental. I think the most important news in the past couple of weeks revolves around Australia, the US, and submarines. So quick background here, I'll I'll hurry through it a little bit because I think this is a topic we've discussed a bit on the show. China has militarized much of the South China Sea. They have claimed the waters of the South China Sea as their own, even though multiple international bodies have said these waters belong to other countries, such as the Philippines and Vietnam. And if you haven't done so, please look up something called the Nine Dash Line. Look at that map. China just drew some lines and then said that anything inside of the lines belongs to China. It's it's really absurd. They started building military bases on tiny little islands inside of those dashed lines, including on the Paracel Islands and the Spratly Islands. And this, in my opinion, is the most important thing in geopolitics right now. If you are not paying attention to this, you should be. President Obama had the chance to stop this, but he was afraid of China and he didn't. And now we still need to address it. 
Australia doesn't like it. They have been in a much more open adversarial relationship with China over the past couple of years, which is a big change because China was Australia's number one trading partner for many years. I mean, if you think about it, China wants to build everywhere. And to do that, you need raw materials. You need iron ore, you need coal, you need copper. Australia is full of those things. But there was always this incongruity to the relationship where Australia relies on China for its economic well-being, but Australia relies on America for its security alliances. And so there's this tension there. And last year, China made it harder to ignore this tension. They laid out a list of 14 grievances that were quite striking in their animosity, in their hypocrisy. And after that, China banned many Australian products, wine, lobster, barley, coal, sugar, timber, they all faced this Chinese trade embargo, which wreaked havoc on the Australian economy. And suddenly the government in Australia had to pay more attention to China as a threat, as a rival. You know, around nine years ago in 2012, Australia started negotiating a deal with France to purchase eight diesel-powered submarines from France. Building submarines is a huge industry in France, and, and that industry is considered like a national treasure. So they signed the deal four years later in 2016, but apparently the French were doing a terrible job of delivering on the contract. They were way over budget. They were way behind schedule. And then last week, and here's the big news, Australia announced something huge. They announced that they are canceling the order with France and that they're going to buy eight nuclear-powered submarines from the U.S. and England. We have not given nuclear technology to any country since 1958. And the, the subs that we are selling to Australia are way more advanced than the French diesel subs. They're going to allow Australia to conduct much more sophisticated operations to counter China in the region. France is furious. France has withdrawn its ambassadors from the US and Australia. They've said that the US doesn't respect international agreements. I, I mean, I, I disagree. I think this looks like a bilateral commercial dispute between France and Australia. Australia ordered the diesel submarines. France is pissed that they canceled the order. And France is trying to broaden this and describe it as some sort of broken coalition. But there's little evidence of this. This is a dispute over cost, over progress on construction, over the strategic value of these diesel submarines compared to nuclear. And France has talked about wanting to be compensated for this. But I mean, apparently the, the contract has very clear exit clauses based on time and status and work product. And there are public reports of meetings going back years about how upset the Australians were about this submarine building. They were upset about the cost overruns. They were upset that the, the subs that they had decided to buy were perceived as dated and that the French weren't, the French had apparently promised to produce uh, a large portion of the submarines locally or with local components and they weren't doing that. So none of this should have been a surprise to France. The Timing here isn't exactly clear, but it sounds like this wasn't the Biden administration jumping in and trying to 
break up the French-Australian deal. It seems like they were approached by Australia about putting this together somewhere around 12 to 18 months ago, meaning that this was the Trump administration that kicked this off and that the Biden administration came in, they inherited this deal and they closed it. And good for them. I, I think we need to see more of this. And concurrent, concurrent, concurrently, I don't know, with this deal, Australia, the US, and the UK announced a security pact called AUKUS, A-U-K-U-S. This alliance is very important. It's meant to counter Chinese military expansion. The UK and Australia have signaled that they are intent on deterring Chinese aggression in the South China and East China Sea. And the UK deployed a carrier strike group to that region as a a sign of its resolve. But the UK can't maintain a constant carrier strike group in the Western Pacific. But this pact is potentially going to include an explicit agreement around building bases which will allow the US and UK to build bases in Australia for American Virginia class submarines, which this is important, right? Forward deployment of these ships and of US soldiers is going to reduce wear and tear on on the vessels. And most importantly, it's going to reduce the transit time between the US and Asia. Look, I've, I've said it before, this is the gravest threat that we face. It is going to come to a head sooner than we would like. You know, somewhere around 2018, I think a lot of the American policy establishment grasped finally that China poses a major threat to the contemporary international order, to US power, to liberal values. You know, this is something that that President Trump had talked about for a long time and he was mocked for it. But I think people are starting to realize that and Biden has done a good job of, of, of following through on it. I think the rest of America started to realize the same thing after the COVID-19 pandemic, that the Chinese Communist Party is a malicious actor, that it is willing to manipulate information to pressure others for its own political gain. And China has still not been held accountable and probably never will be for COVID, which is terrible. But I think we realize the threat here. AUKUS is a step towards a new balance of power in the Pacific. In in a region where alliances have sometimes seemed fragile, especially during the Trump presidency, AUKUS marks a real hardening of American attitudes. It's a deep, decades-long commitment where America and Britain are transferring some of their most sensitive technology. The three countries are are going to cooperate on cyber, artificial intelligence, quantum computing. This matters. This is a rebuttal to Chinese belligerence. And in the sea lanes and in the islands that are flashpoints with China, nuclear submarines are much more versatile than diesel electric ones. They can gather intelligence, they can deploy special forces, they can lurk for months in the Pacific or in the Indian Ocean. And the Chinese planners are going to have to factor this in. I did a bit on some TV shows uh, last week and 
Uh, I talked about some shows that I enjoyed. You know what show I did not enjoy? Ted Lasso. In fact, I think it's it's horrible. It's one of the stupidest shows I've seen, and I totally don't get the hype. It's just people saying cheesy stuff. It's not good writing. I don't think I've enjoyed any of these Apple TV programs. There's that one about the news and and the famous actresses and you know the the Me Too thing. I thought that was terrible writing. Uh, they have this new Isaac Asimov one. The reviews aren't great. Uh, I always love sci-fi, so I'll, I'll probably give it a shot, but I, uh, I, it doesn't sound like it's going to be that great. Uh, on the topic of TV, you know, they keep doing these award shows, the Emmys and the, what is it, Oscars? No, I don't know. They've, they've done a bunch of them. And it is just painful to watch the way they make all of the servants at these award shows wear masks. But then you have all the famous people congratulating themselves and they're not wearing masks. And I don't think there is even a hint of scientific logic behind this. And that's the problem. The, the, the logic, the reasoning, the explanations, they're all twisted to match whatever narrative is convenient to justify it. They tell you, trust the science as if the science was some defined thing. It's just bullshit. Remember last summer when, by the way, no one had a vaccine and there were these massive protests and riots in many cities and the protesters, the same people who told us how urgent it was that we all get locked up and, and stay inside and nobody go outside and do anything. And you got to save grandma and, and protect everyone. They, they were out there in the streets and they told us that it was somehow okay because it was so urgent and that they were protecting someone's safety. I mean, it was just nonsense. I, I have no problem with them protesting. It's just hypocritical. And they invented the reasoning to justify whatever they want to do. You know, with these award shows, I don't know who bothers to watch this crap anymore. I, I never found them interesting. Not that they shouldn't have awards. Like, I don't care. The award, whatever you want. It's just, who would bother to pay attention to this? Uh, but one thing that's interesting in the Emmys is that, that's the TV awards, is that the big award now is the best miniseries. Uh, and, and I think that reflects something kind of interesting. You know, I, I've, I've thought a lot about this shift in prestige that I, I, I observe. I don't know if it's real, but this shift from movies to TV. Because it used to be that if you were a great writer or a great actor, you would do movies. That was more prestigious. It paid more money. It generated more fame. TV was like, I don't know, pulpier. And, and I think that there have been several shifts and people are quick to attribute them to streaming services, but I think that lacks some nuance. I think there's more to it than that. I think, first of all, if you have a great story to tell, you can tell it a lot better with 10 hours than you can with two hours. Not in all cases, not every story needs to be that long, but having that extra time to unpack the details and the character development and the subtlety. For a great writer, I think that can be very meaningful. Second is the shift to not seeing every TV show as something that must go on forever. Right? It used to be if you made a TV show and it was a success in the first season, they'd be like, make more of that. Here's some money. Do more seasons. And then, then you have to force it. 
right? Then the writers are like, okay, I guess we'll just make another season of Dexter or whatever. But for a lot of writers, for a lot of stories, that's not a good approach. They told the story they wanted to tell in the first season. And then after that, they were just stretching it out. And that's why so many TV shows degrade and and seem to jump the shark after the first season, because the writers were just scrambling to come up with something. And, And with weak writing, they're forced to resort to tricks where the characters are always saved in the nick of time or some kind of, you know, borderline superhero type stuff. That's boring. That's weak. I said last week that my favorite genre of books is great literature. You know, the French, the German, the Russian authors of the 18th and 19th century, the Tolstoys and Hugos and Dostoevsky's. I didn't say that to sound pretentious or to hype my own intellect. I said it because I love reading that stuff because those authors understood humans. They understood people. They they made real people and characters who exhibited actual emotions. They did what a real person would do in the same situation. And so it feels authentic. It feels genuine. You can connect to it. And by understanding those characters, by reading them, by immersing ourselves in them, we understand people. And TV can do the same thing. Provided that the writing is good, TV can do the same thing. Great writing gives you insight into the the personalities and emotions that you wouldn't necessarily experience those feelings or those attributes yourself. I think that's part of what made The Wire so great. It had characters who exhibited these powerful emotions that felt real. And you could, you could, you could, they, they seem genuine. And you have this shift from movies to TV so that the stories can breathe. And it works better if you can just tell a story and let that be it. You don't need a sequel. You don't need a second season or a third or a fourth or a fifth. And that's probably why this best mini series is kind of the most important award at the Emmys now, because the stories like Chernobyl and the Queen's Gambit and Escape at Dannemora, there's plenty more of them, by the way. Those are the most compelling stories. I I enjoy going to the movies. I, I really do. It's fun to watch movies on the big screen. I find it to be offensively expensive when I do it. It's not convenient. You spend 30 bucks a person with food to watch a program for a couple of hours. And you know, I have a tiny bladder. I need to get up to pee like three times during every movie. So then I miss something. I can't pause it. I can't watch with closed captions. I watch everything with closed captions, by the way. So I rarely go to the movies. My my basic thought process is, look, I've gone, I don't know, 36 years without seeing this movie. I can surely wait another three or four months to watch it and I'll be just fine. But I think a lot of people are thinking that way, which means that the economics of these movies and the amount of dollars available to divvy up is declining. And that's happening just as the good writers and the actors are doing more TV. And that brings me to the third major shift that I've seen, which is probably the most controversial one I'll put forth, which is the one place where the economics of movies is growing strongly is China. And just as movie theaters in the U.S. haven't had a great run, in China, they're opening thousands of new screens. 
which means that for the studios, it makes a lot more sense to produce movies for the Chinese market. And in China, the movies that they like, the ones that get past the censors, they're not the prestige dramas that people are watching here. The Chinese love stuff that goes bang. They want the loud and noisy movies. Why do you think Fast and the Furious 9 is a hit there? Why do you think there are 300 different superhero movies out at at any time? These movies are incoherent, but in China, they love them. And the plots are written to make sure that there is nothing that is going to offend China and the Chinese censors and the Chinese government. That, that, that's easy for Disney. Like Disney's got a whole business of making movies for China. Disney is a Chinese shill. But unless you are one of these Chinese viewers, don't waste your time with movies anymore. Last night, I took my son and his best friend to Giant Stadium for a kid's football skills clinic, and it was an amazing event. Before the event, earlier in the day, to get ready for it, my son and I went to Paragon Sporting Goods to get footballs so the boys could get autographs. And I, I don't know, for those who don't know me that well, my son is incredibly athletic, very, very competitive. He's seven years old, but like ruthlessly competitive and very focused on sports. So we go to Paragon, we get these these footballs. I have this big paper shopping bag with two full-size footballs in it. I've got the two kids. I've got, I, we, you know, we park it at MetLife Stadium and we walk in. And let me, let me like set the scene for you. So there's about 120 kids there, almost all of them with their dads. There were a couple of moms, but almost all with their dads. Everyone looks, you know, pretty normal. And then there's me with the shopping bag with the footballs. And I also had a duffel bag, like a messenger type duffel bag with snacks and water bottles and sweatshirts for the kids. I'm just loaded down with crap. I'm the only one who brought all this stuff. We walk out onto the field and I hear my son go, whoa, as he's taking it all in. And now that was a really cool moment. There were three former players there to work with the kids, David Tyree, Rich Seibert, and Kevin Booth. David Tyree, of course, is famous because of the Super Bowl in 2008 when he caught a pass from Eli Manning against his helmet in the fourth quarter to set up the game-winning touchdown for the Giants. And the Giants had set up several stations on the field, almost like a combine. So my son and his friend go over to the first station. And when they do that, I spot David Tyree on the field. And so while all of the other parents are watching their kids go do drills like normal, I run over to David Tyree. I drop my bags in the middle of the field and I pull out my camera And I stuff it in the hand of some random guy. And I'm like, would you take our picture? So I put my arm around David Tyree. We get this very nice photo together. And then I walk like two steps away from him. I'm not facing him. I'm not facing anyone. And I just say out loud into the air, that was a great catch you made against your helmet. And for sure, I sounded like I should be wearing a helmet. Like I sounded like a complete buffoon just talking awkwardly into the air. I I mean, I probably need three sessions with my therapist just to deal with how weird I felt saying that. So besides my idiocy, the boys had a great time. They did a a 40-yard dash. My son ran it in 6.85 seconds. They got to run routes, catch passes. They attempted to kick field goals. My son being so competitive, he was like fully dialed in throughout the night. He did these drills where, you know, he, he, he approached them like he thought maybe a scout would notice him and he'd get recruited. Uh, Rich Seibert, former guard for the Giants, said that if any kid 
made a field goal, he would do a lap of the field. But if a kid missed it, the child had to do a lap. And it seems only my son paid attention to this because when he missed, he just took off in a full sprint to do a lap of the field. It was it was really funny to watch. Thank you again to David Tyree, Rich Seibert, Kevin Booth, and the entire New York Giants organization for putting together such a great event. Thank you for listening. You can find me on Instagram at The Lee Show Podcast. You can find me on Twitter, on Substack, read my essays. Pay me money. Sign up as a subscriber to the show. Please do that. Recommend this to your friends and colleagues, and I will be back with more soon.